Okay, I've started the recording. Today's lesson, again, for the sake of the recording, is the history of translations in America and future, um, future developments in this area. So, um, reading in Second uh, Peter um, chapter 3, verse 13 to 18... Uh, says this, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless, and account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to, to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. The word rest um, also means to distort or to twist there. Um, uh, unstable uh, rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and his words. Um, We know um, uh, that the unstable often uh, seeks, and the enemy um, often seeks to twist and distort your words. We pray that you would guard our hearts, that protect us, even from our own wicked intentions, that we would be meek recipients of your grace, of of your truth, Um, of your gospel and uh, we pray Lord that you would help this church to be faithful in preaching your word in Jesus name amen so um, I'm going to be speaking first on the topic of the danger of translation loyalty much of the material that I will be sharing um, in this particular section this morning comes from um, Theodore Letus' book, um, the Ecclesiastical Text. Um, Greek, uh, he makes the point, Greek was such a well-established language during the time of the early church um, that congregations almost exclusively read the Old Testament in the Greek uh, translation of the day, the Septuagint. The Septuagint being done um, before the day, before the um, Christ, the age of Christ, uh, I, I can't remember, it's 200 BC or somewhere in there. Is it, yeah, around that. Um, and uh, so the Septuagint uh, was done by the 70. There were scribes, um, and they all did their own translations separately, and they came together, and, and miraculously, they all came with the same translation. It was, you know, um, there's, there's a bit of mythology around that. Um, and, and even St. Augustine gets swept up into this. Um, uh, uh, in St. Augustine's Concerning the City of God Against the Pagans. This is, this is a trans, I'll be reading from a translation by uh, H. 
Bentenson um, regarding the Septuagint. Augustine says this. Uh, this translation was done in 1972, English translation, I, I assume from the, um, uh, from the Latin. The agreement in the words of their virgins was marvelous. This is Augustine uh, about the Septuagint. Amazing and plainly inspired by God. So you hear what he's saying? Um, Augustine's saying that, that the Greek translation of the Hebrew was inspired by God. There was such a unity in their translations that it was as if there had been one translator. For in truth, there was the one spirit at work in them all. So what was Augustine's error there? What what was he doing? Putting that translation above the Hebrew? Not necessarily above, but at least equal with the Hebrew, wasn't he? So he was making a translation the same authority as the original languages. And so uh, this, is, um, this is something that, oh, what's the problem? With, I mean, and why can't we do that? <laughs> what's, what are some of the reasons why that's a bad idea? Man's sinfulness. Man's sinfulness, right? We know that the scriptures tell us that the author was inspired, you know, uh, from error, was kept from error when he wrote it, um, and uh, and he providentially keeps that pure uh, throughout the ages so for us, um, because he's promised, God has promised that nothing will be dropped from the scriptures, not a jot or tittle will will by no means uh, pass from the uh, from the law. So what is some of the other problems? Uh, so the, you mentioned sinfulness of man. Um, and so there's, uh, there's ignorance, there's uh, laziness, there is um, uh, bias, uh, our own prejudices. We come to the text loaded with a lot of our own you know, uh, you know, thoughts and, and that kind of thing. Um, it's also something that the Bible doesn't really tell us that all future translations into other languages will be kept in it uh, without error. Um, and so, and then um, uh, you, you can't really escape the, the um, that there's always, whenever you're translating one language into another, there's always a, uh, a bit of interpretation that interjects kind of, you know, what you're mentioning, David, um, so uh, that is something uh, that we should be guarding against. And that's something that the Reformation stood up against. Um, what, so we'll talk a little bit about some of the other uh, problems that arose during the time of the Re- Re- Reformation. Let's skip ahead to the Reformation. We have other translations that was raised, another translation that was raised to the level of inspired, not by the Reformers, but by the Roman Catholics. That was, of course, Jerome's Latin Vulgate. Um, Letus makes the points that the Protestant churches in Lutheran, Anglican, and Reformed expressions sought to connect with ancient Catholic tradition. When I say Catholic, I mean lowercase Catholic tradition. Um, As an outworking of Scripture alone, or sola scriptura, they saw a need to return to the authority of the Scripture in the original languages as key to this connection to the past. 
The the reformers also insisted that their ministers be trained in the trilingual tradition. Can you guess what those languages would be? What's the trilingual tradition? Greek, he said. Greek and Aramaic? No, close. Latin. Um, Because a lot of... A lot of theological works at that time. That was the language of the day, kind of like the technical or the theological language of, uh, of the day at that time. <clears throat> so if you were to become a, the, uh, a minister, a reformed minister during the Reformation, you had to know fluently those languages. In fact, I've heard, even heard things about the Puritans and how well-versed that they were in those languages, that they could... You know, the first-year student could make an argument in in, in the Greek, and the second year, you know, I, I'm not sure if that's you know in in both Greek and Hebrew, and then you know eventually in all, you could then have a debate basically in all three languages. <clears throat> um, that's from another talk that I've heard years and years ago. I don't even know if it's accurate or not, but I know um, that they were very, especially the Puritans, um, they were very well educated. Um, in the in these languages and well read, um, so the reformers. Uh, okay, so however, in the Roman Catholic Church, this had become innovative, innovative due to their adherence to the Vulgate. This whole idea of going back to the original languages uh, to the Roman Catholic Church was innovative. During the Counter Reformation, the Roman Catholics declared the Vulgate to be held as authentic. This quote. Be, this, is a, this is a quote from the Council of Trent, the Counter-Reformation, um, that the Vulgate is, quote, to be held as authentic. You understand that? The, the Vulgate, the Latin translation, is the authentic scriptures, is what they're saying. Um, and their concern was um, the inquisitors would be um, debating, or maybe they might be even... Um, trying to persuade through torture or through whatever, they'd be de- debating with a reformer that they've got under the inquisitors under their control. And every time they would bring up, this is wrong, this is, this is an error, they would bring up the scriptures <laughs> and say, yeah, but, but the Greek says this. <clears throat> and the, the inquisitors wouldn't know the Greek and wouldn't know, and they said, if, if, will continually be basically defeated by these grammatical um, arguments if we do not ascribe uh, the, the Vulgate as the uh, authoritative um, word of God. <clears throat> Letus describes how the Reformation had a radical side in the Anabaptist. Okay, so I, I mentioned that, you know, in early church... Um, with Augustine, what was the problem? They they adhered to the Septuagint as inspired, and during the Reformation, what the Roman Catholics have the error was that they they ascribed the Vulgate as inspired. Um, so now I'm kind of moving on to the whole development of the King James version um, and how that in America started to become looked at as inspired or without held without error. And this starts with, uh, Letus kind of starts this with a kind of a history, historical overview of the Anabaptists. He describes how in the Reformation had a radical side in the Anabaptists. He describes the horrors of the, of the takeover of Munster 
uh, by the Anabaptists in 1533 to 1535, where John Mathis, claiming to be Enoch, persuaded the entire city that the end of the world was near and that Munster was the new Jerusalem. (laughs) Um, Sounds familiar. Uh, We've seen this happen uh, in American history uh, quite often, this uh, declaring, oh, Jesus is about to come back. He's, you know, this is is the day. Um, uh, So within his article, The Revival of the Ecclesiastical Text and the Claims of the Anabaptists, he uses the term Anabaptists very broadly here. And he, he specifically says this. Um, uh, we know Anabaptists in America. Um, there are the, um, uh, there's the uh, Mennonites, uh, the Amish, um, come from Anabaptist roots. They're particularly German-based. Um, uh, we had a, um, when I lived in Iowa, there was a colony called Amish, or the Amana Colonies. And the Mana colonies were a bunch of German quietists, and they would, I, I roomed with a, a guy from from the Mana colonies in college, and he um, he told me about his history of, of the Mana colonies, and they they're very low church. Um, the brethren, Plymouth brethren, a guy I worked with in, in uh, at the um, the principal financial group where I worked in downtown Des Moines, fantastic brother in the Lord. I loved him greatly. Uh, was in the Brethren Church, and I went to some of his church, his uh, one of his meetings, um, and they just have they wait a very low church. You, they wait for someone to get up and be led by the Spirit and and to come and preach. You know, one of the usually older gentlemen in the church to come and start preaching from the Word of God. Um, uh, but, but but there's no appointed offices. You know, no you know elders, no deacons, and you know, it's very much anti organizational anti-establishment um, and so uh, so he uh, Theta Letus uses this term the Anabaptist to more generally to include those religious expressions that have the following traits number one they're ultra separatists and recognize no visible institutional expression of Catholic orthodoxy number two those who have share a restorationist mentality. They are certain, quote, they are certain that they alone are a living expression of a primitive or apostolic or first century or original biblical Christianity. Um, And then number three, they usually do not believe in baptizing their infants. Um, So uh, that's, that's his, when he uses the word Anabaptist, he's, you know, the umbrella term describe all of that, even though it, it historically it's been uh, more narrow than that. Letus also argues that America became breeding a breeding ground for quote he called it a very every independent religious impulse conceivable to human consciousness. A cocktail of cults now bubbled up from the cauldron of the state without a religion. Uh, that's uh, um, uh, a quote, end quote. Uh, later on in page 205, he states, cut off from the archetype of ancient Catholic orthodoxy, America invented its own, orthodoxy, or its own orthodoxy, fundamentalism. Uh, he, he also makes the point uh, that market, quote, market forces intruded into the equation in direct proportion to this disintegration of ecclesiastical consensus. And later he states, by the middle of this century, nearly everyone 
was now prepared to put, when he says this century, he means the 20th century. Um, he died, um, and, and uh, he's no, no longer alive, but he, he wrote that article in the 19, 1900s, <laughs> uh, late 1900s. Um, so when he says this century, he's talking about the 20th. Uh, market forces, oh, by the middle of this century, nearly everyone was now prepared to put down the old English Bible and to take up one of the many modern options available. But for the fundamentalists, nearly all of whom normal, normally held emotionally rather than any, in, in an informed way to the old Bible of the Anglican Church. Okay. Now, what is the irony of that statement? Yes, but what about that? I mean, if you think about it, the fundamentalists were very low church. So uh, it's kind of strange that they would emotionally tie themselves to a Bible that was put together by a bunch of Anglicans that's high church. <laughs> so it's like, you know, now I will say um, that the Brethren Church uh, came up with their own Bible, the Darby, uh, Darby's translation, um, I believe. Uh, but anyways, um, most uh, most of them were King James only. The fundamentalists, at least, became emotionally tied to uh, the King James version, and really didn't know the history behind it. Didn't they didn't know that really this is a, an Anglican um, authorized version? What does it mean to be an authorized version? It means to be authorized to be read in the Church of England. Um, and so uh, there's a little bit of irony there. Um, uh, then, um, then the Edward F. Edward F. Hills came along as a Presbyterian OPC, by the way, um, applying his Vantillian presuppositional apologetics to the Word of God and to textual criticism. Um, and uh, let me let me explain. Uh, a quote from you, what Letus has to say about uh, Edward F. Hills here, page 217. As a Presbyterian, he believed the Westminster Confession's affirming affirmation that the Bible would be preserved in its integrity within the Christian church. That's Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, verse 8, which meant that those original language texts which had been uniformly used with the greatest degree of historic continuity, qualified as the, as the providentially preserved editions. This was, in fact, the position of most of the Protestant dogmaticians, Lutheran and Reformed, six, since the 17th century. Hills came to many of the same conclusions as Burgon, Burgon as an Anglican, uh, uh, but in the place of the high church argument of apostolic succession as a guarantee, perhaps more implicit than explicit in Burgon, he appealed directly to the affirmation of the Presbyterian Westminster Confession of Faith. Hence, Hills was much more content to abide by the form of the Greek New Testament, which actually underlaid the authorized version with all its historic accidents, because it was this recension that had been sanctioned by the Westminster Confession. Or Westminster Confession. Um, I'll just go ahead and stop there. So, 
Here you have uh, Edward F. Hills, um, who uh, who came about the his loyalty to the authorized version was was academic. It was because um, uh, he understood the providence of God, and he applied the providential preservation of scriptures that came out of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 8, he applied that to textual criticism, and he had a thoroughgoing understanding of all the texts, and, and he had the, basically the background and the, the knowledge, um, he was very well le learned, um, to, uh, to able to articulate and make you know, arguments to support the authorized version. But whenever he interacted, uh, it's interesting. I, after I, I read this this um, this chapter by Letus, I started to read, um, come across letters between the two, between Letus and Hills, and because they were alive at the same time, and it was it's kind of funny because they would have they would write letters saying I was I was invited by a bunch of. Uh, um, by a bunch of fundamentalists to come to a conference on the King James, and um, and he, he you know this would be Letus writing to Hill. Should I accept? And Hill said, um, No, I've already gone down that path. I've been um, I, I've been involved with that group. You want to steer clear from them. Um, and 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 it's kind of interesting how that all went down. But um, I kind of digress. Uh, I didn't know that they corresponded together and that they were so. Uh, um, you know, good friends that they could correspond um, like that. So um, the work, interesting enough, the works of Hills and the Anglican Burgon were used by the fundamentalists to support their emotional belief that the King James was authoritative and should be the only Bible that Christians should use. Groups sprung up like the Dean Burgon Society and the Tikonian Society. Have you ever heard of the Tikonian Society? Uh, they advocated geocentricity, and the King James 1611 is in the inspired is the inspired Bible, correcting even the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, strange groups um, would spring up. Um, uh, we and so um, they gave. They ended up basically muddying the waters. Um, and poisoning the well, you might say, on this issue. And so anytime you would bring up, well, you know, these modern critical texts, they, uh, um, they, they, they're tainted, they're, maybe they're, you believe that they, we should debate this issue of whether we should be using the modern critical text or the, um, the Texas Receptus or the Byzantine or the, or the um, uh, Byzantine text. Anytime you bring up that kind of that kind of topic, immediately people would be tempted to kind of, because their only experience was with that whole topic was with these wacko fundamentalists that are believing in King James only, they would think, oh, that's, that's what you're talking about, and kind of put you, poison the waters a little bit, and they would kind of put you in that, in that bucket. Um, and so uh, it's, um, we must reject the idea that a translation is inspired. Um, the Bible never gives us that liberty. Um, I want to read uh, to you just uh, a little, little blurb in uh, Edward F. Hills about this whole topic. And he says this. 
and page 299. Do we believe Bible students worship the King James Version? Do we regard it as inspired, just as the ancient philosopher Philo did, uh, who died in AD 42, and many many early Christians regarded the Septuagint as inspired? Or do we claim the same supremacy for the King James Version that Roman Catholics claim for the Latin Vulgate? Do we magnify its authority above that of the Hebrew and the Greek Old and New Testament scriptures? Do we often, uh, we have often been accused of such excessive veneration for the King James Version, but these accusations are false. And later he says, admittedly, this venerable version is not absolutely perfect, referring to the King James, but it is trustworthy. No Bible-believing Christian who relies upon it will ever be led astray, but it is just the opposite with modern versions. They are untrustworthy, and they do lead Bible-believing Christians astray. So that, that's his, his statement on the King James. It's not inspired. The King James is not inspired. Um, that's not what these, any of these authors were saying. Um, and there's real dangers to doing that, uh, to going in that direction. <clears throat> uh, yeah, David. The Geneva Bible predated King James. Yeah, yeah. And do I recall, I think I read or heard that actually a lot of King James, they used Geneva Bible as background for the development of the King James. Yeah, and, and I think there might have been also a lot of the Tyndale um, okay. Bible, but yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the English what the Puritans wording. Use. The Puritans, um, they, um, the, well, the Pur- the Puritans you're talking about, the Puritans, the American, in the US, yeah, in the, the Bible that came over on um, a, the Puritan voyage over to Plymouth was the Reformation, uh, the Geneva Bible. Okay. Yeah. So just the English translation of the German. Geneva no, Bible. Geneva Bible was a translation of the Greek, um, the Texas Receptus. Um, and it was done in Geneva, uh, at, and there were Greek uh, manuscripts um, being printed in Geneva. In fact, some of the printer, like scribe, uh, not scribe, um, uh, one, of the, one of the printers had to flee from, for his life um, and fled to Geneva, and that uh, became a, a main printing place for the Greek New Testament. Okay. And then they made other translations, not just the Geneva Bible, but they made Italian translations, they made French translations uh, in Geneva, and that kind of thing. So yeah, okay. all of this was happening during the Reformation when they were discovering those original languages. Okay. Yeah. So it went straight from Greek into English? Yes, yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Now they did, they did look at, you know, uh, other translations and how and so when when David's talking about how they would use some of the wording they would keep the wording there from maybe Tyndale or something like that if it was solid you know and so you would see you know people would compare and say hey this is very similar um, you know so um, so now what we're going to do is we're going to move on to uh, future developments in this area of translations <clears throat> Much of the material um, that I'll be sharing on the, the specifically, I want to talk about the coherence-based genealogical method. 
a coherence-based uh, genealogical method is really a, a tool that um, translators are start, starting to utilize and, te and textual critics are starting to utilize to come up with new versions of the Greek New Testament. So right now we are on Nestle Allen version 28, okay? And <clears throat> I looked, I have in my pocket here Nestle Allen 27 um, in my little Bible software uh, accordance. And <clears throat> I noticed there was a difference. Um, I'll be sharing with you a little bit of Second Peter, some, uh, some changes that have, they've brought about by version 28. So the coherence-based genealogical method is really a computer tool. And it's um, been developed by a, a single uh, university and, um, in Münster, uh, ironically enough, uh, Germany. Um, it's the, uh, let's see if I can, it uses computer software to analyze all the, and collate all the various manuscripts um, and their variances. It uses artificial intelligence to detect text genealogies. Um, and uh, so they've, they've made some changes in their philosophy. And change number one is that they reject the idea uh, that the trans, uh, in translational text types. So if you ever hear about the Byzantine family or the Alexandrian family or the Western family text types, they reject all that. They say, that's not useful. Let's just look at every single text and treat it um, each one differently. <clears throat> in 2012, the 28th edition of the Nestle Allen New Testament was apply applied the C CBGM to James through Jude. Okay, and the result that this resulted in 33 verses being changed from the edition 27 of Nestle Allen to to edition 28. Um, such example te uh, changes were like 2 Peter um, 3.10. And we, you may already have your Bibles open uh, to 3.10. It says in, in the King James, it says, Knowing this, no, I'm sorry, uh, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth, earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Is what my that, that's the King James. But what does the ESV say? I'm curious. Anybody have an ESV? Uh, yeah, go ahead. What tells the last verse? The, the last word there is besides burned up. What does it say? Uh, burned up and dissolved. And dissolved. Burned up and dissolved. This is the problem with the ESV. There are multiple text variants in the ESV. And there's so multiple it's, ESVs. It's, and in mine, it says they. They, uh, uh, the works that will done it will be exposed. Will be exposed. Okay. <clears throat> and is your is your ESV? Um, it it may be that um, that's the legacy edition. Yeah, that's probably the first. This is one of my problems with the ESV. <laughs> they keep making minor changes, but they don't note them. I think that might be the legacy edition. I think there's a legacy edition that they said that we weren't going to change anything. Yeah. And it was going to stay. And then 
in the prefix they said that in the, I think the first edition or something, but then later editions they said, no, we're actually going to make some changes. Well, and, and they keep, well, they're incremental changes, but they don't, but they don't version them. And so it's, it's difficult to... Like, Does yours have a, a little number three uh, footnote? And yeah, it does. Yeah, okay. It does, yeah. It says some manuscripts say yeah, we'll be burned. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so mine, which was published in 2016, calls it the ESV permanent text. Yeah, that's it. Okay, permanent. Mm -hmm. And if you look in their preface material for textual bases and resources, um, they do say that the ESV has followed a Greek text different from the text given preference in the UBS Nestle Allen 28. Right, yeah, they use both the USB, United Bible Society, UBS, yeah, and the Nessie Allen, yeah. Yeah, there's like fifth edition of UBS, and then there's 27, 20, 27, 28. So anyway, so for 28 of Nestle Allen, they introduced uh, the, this change. They added the word not before, okay, so 20. Nestle Allen 27 says exposed instead of destroyed. <clears throat> um, I'll bring out my, my Greek New Testament here. <clears throat> so the last word in verse 10 in the Texas Receptus is um, no, that's the wrong verse. I'm in Revelation 1:10. Sorry. Anyways, the Texas Receptus says destroyed. Then 27th edition says exposed, and the 28th edition says not exposed. They add the word not, which is a conject what they call it a conjectural amendation. And that conjectural emendation does not come from any extent manuscripts, but only from fragments. Okay, so they've been looking at the, these various old, really old fragments, and they found a couple that say "not exposed" um, instead of it's, it's not. Um, so it doesn't really match with the verse because the verse says the elements are going to melt everything, everything's going to dissolve, you know, and and be destroyed. And um, and now they're saying, but the earth will not be exposed. It changes theologically what the meaning of that verse is. I mean, one ver one one day you're reading Nestle Allen verse you know version 27, and it says exposed, and the next day you get this new version in the mail, version 28, and it says you're preaching through you know Second Peter, and suddenly it says not exposed. Now which is it? Is it exposed or not exposed? Or is it exposed or destroyed? Which of those two things uh, is it? And that, that has a completely different uh, you know, feeling of, of, or not feeling, but understanding of, of that verse as well. There's another verse, Jude, Jude 5. And here, between uh, this is one of the 33 changes that they've made with Nestle Allen uh, version 28. Um, Jude 5. I can get to find my Jude. 
such a small book, so it's hard to... It says, um, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. The word Lord there in the Nestle Allen edition 28 has been changed to Jesus. And the ESV, okay. Um, so you must be ha- having a newer, newer ESV. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so what they did there is they in- introduced a Christological error. Okay. When is Jesus called? When is the Son of God named Jesus? When he becomes incarnate, yeah. right? And now they're saying that that name applies to, uh, you know, the Son of God. Uh, I, I mean, some people would say, hey, that's a good thing, right? Because it's a high Christology. You know, it's saying that Christ is the same as God. But it also um, introduces a problem because the name Jesus was not known uh, in the Old Testament. Or it shouldn't be applied to the Son of God in the Old Testament because he was not incarnate yet. Um, and and so uh, that's can be problematic. Um, so here are some problems with the the coherence-based genealogical method. Um, computers may save time, but they do not remove subjectivity. Uh, it relies on algorithms written with bias, and it relies on data input that reflects bias. Okay, so even with computer programming. I, I know, I'm a computer programmer. <laughs> um, I write software, and you can write software with various business rules. And those business rules uh, reflect whatever you want the software to do. Um, and uh, so uh, it's not as if you're, you're uh, removing all bias by going to this con- uh, coherence-based genealogical method. Um, there's also, uh, it starts with the Nestle Allen 27 to determine all variances which is problematic as well. The goal is not to find the original autographs any longer. The goal of the coherence-based genealogical method is to find what they call the initial text. And the initial text is probably, you know, something close to the original autograph, but they realize, no, that the original autograph are completely out of, out of touch and can never be found. Um, and so their goal is only to find the initial text. Um, It does not utilize any early church fathers or early translations. And so um, uh, all of Bergon's work that where he he went through all the early church fathers and found which ones were using the the traditional text versus the critical text, um, uh, that's all out the window. Uh, Does allows the uh, for conjectural emendations. Um, such as adding the negative article to Second Peter 3.10. And the software further is further centralized in one university in Munster, uh, Germany. Oh, here's the name of it. Institute for New Testamentalic Text for Schoen. Pardon my... New Testament Text Research. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's my... Sad attempt at pronouncing German. I, umlaut you there. For, uh, anyways, uh, eventually the, the CBGM will be applied to other books of the Nestle Allen critical text 
in the New Testament in future editions. So this is only going to start even more uh, translation work, and then the publishing houses will say, oh, look, your, your ESV is old stuff now. We've got Nestle Allen, whatever. We need a new translation. Yeah, um, go ahead, John. Yeah, just a, a thought. Kind of what you've been discussing throughout the, the series is the, the preservation, divine preservation, the Holy Spirit of the Word of God. And mm-hmm. it strikes me that in applying a, a digital tool and re- therefore removing the human labor that goes into these translations and the, the, the discernment that goes into that, we cut out. God, God works through people. Yes. Uses the, men as means. Right. And so we are not only cutting out in an attempt to be efficient or you know, thorough or whatever, writing our, our digital tools, we are removing the means that God uses. Yeah. Not that we can't use digital algorithms. Right. Um, but it's also saying that we now, it's a progressive mentality, that we now have this, these tools. Now we have the right tool to figure it out. And dismissing that the Spirit of God has been working. Yeah. And that is our tool, <laughs> and it has been for centuries. Yeah, the church has been... Moving on. Yeah, the, has, has, has been starving, you know, from the Word of God because they never had these tools. <laughs> it's definitely leaning in that direction, that, that direction of removing the Spirit uh, to, to some degree. Now, there is bias, you know, and, and that can be a good and bad thing, um, but, and discernment um, that takes place after these tools are used. But, um, but yeah, it does tend to, to make it much more of a, a mechanical exercise versus a spirit-led Holy Spirit guiding the church into all truth. Um, yeah. Now here's my concluding remarks. We've got a little bit of time left. Uh, who, who is, I'm going to ask this question, who is entrusted with the care of the sacred scriptures? The church, yeah, it's is it the is it the you know the unbelieving academics, okay? So why why is that why is it that God has entrusted the church and not the world to His His word? Yes, they don't have the spirit, right? Yeah, exactly. Unbelievers are under the influence of who? Of the enemy, of the, of the spirit of the sage, of Satan. Satan, if given the opportunity, will always seek to distort and twist the scriptures. He will always weaken them with doubt. Half God said, and he especially seeks to destroy any account of the resurrection. Proponents of the modern critical text has sought to take the Bible out of the hands of the church and into the hands of the, of, of the academic, academia. Um, the academy, I'm sorry. The academy does not promote itself by promoting tradition. The academy promotes itself and makes itself relevant through constant innovation and novelty. Um, that's how, how you write papers. That's how you get PhDs, is you come up with something new. Um, church sessions must wrestle with these issues if they are going to shepherd the church of God. As we have seen throughout the lessons of this class, our modern Greek texts are constantly being revised. The academics will always seek to change God's word 
and modern so-called evangelical publishing houses will always be looking for enterprising translations to be published. Now, how does this impact us? How does this impact the everyday churchgoer, uh, this whole class? Why have we been studying this? Um, Well, this trickles down to you. This will trickle down to you. This will impact you. Um, The modern Greek and Hebrew texts lead to new modern translations and and it impacts what is taught taught in the pulpit. Eventually, it impacts what Christians read and what uh, what they study as the scriptures. If the church is to retain the word of God, we must all become wise consumers. Do your homework. Um, read up on a given translation. I like to look at Wikipedia. I know Wikipedia has you know some mixed uh, um, uh, people have mixed thoughts about that, but it's very clear. Uh, in each page that on a particular given translation will list in the right-hand column, there'll be a little, it says textual basis, okay? And it will list out what they used when they made the translations of that particular translation. Um, look for uh, words like textus receptus or nuvum testamentum gra- grace, uh, gra- grace, which is the Nestle Allen uh, version. What, what are they using? Um, there are, uh, that I know of, four main English translations that still use the Texas Receptus. There's obviously the King James Version. There's the New King James Version. There's the modern English Version that came out in 2014. Um, And there is the World English Bible, the Web, which came out in 2000 based on one man who was a Bible translator for a missionary. Uh, He made an English translation that's based not on the Texas Receptus, but based on the majority text, which is the Byzantine uh, manuscripts. So that's the King James Version, the New King James Version, Modern English Version, World English Bible. Um, if you want to steer away from these modern critical texts, um, those are the translations that you have available to you in the English. Uh, there may be some other, um, I, I've, I've heard of uh, King James Version 2016 that's just got the New Testament done. I'm not sure. Uh, you know about the the um, the people that were had had done that. Um, uh, but another thing that you can do as a as a churchgoer is that you can ask your pastor to preach from the traditional text, um, and and uh, preach authoritative. Preach the end of Mark. <laughs> preach the resurrection. Um, don't be afraid just because it's got square brackets around it um, to go into those texts. And to understand that God has preserved his word, um, even though these two translations, which we've talked about, the history and the, the um, textual uh, uh, history behind um, uh, the, the Texas, these codexes, the um, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Um, so anyways, that's some basic things that you can do as a, as a uh, churchgoer. And uh, I hope um, this lesson has at least, or that this study has at least uh, been a, a little bit of a call to arms um, here to, to protect and to hold the preciousness of God's holy word. Um, and, and to do that um, uh, at the session level um, at, uh, that churches should be looking into this issue and coming to their own conclusions. Uh, don't leave it up to the academic world. 
the epidemic, academic world. I mean, it's good to read the academics and, it, and to, to, to read and study these issues and to look at their arguments. Look at both sides. But, um, but don't just blindly go after you know, the next new, shiny new toy that comes down the, um, down the publishing houses. Uh, um, uh, um, anyways, I'll go ahead and, and there, is there any questions? Uh, I'll go ahead and open up uh, to questions. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. On the, uh, one of the texts that you have there, not the Hills one, the other one, you read a quote just a little bit ago um, referring to the Greek New Testament as having historical accidents. What does that mean? Um, with all of, that was not the Greek. I think it was King James, the authorized version. He said, "With all its historical accidents." I know what you're talking about, but I think he was talking about the King James version. Okay. So, or maybe the tech. Maybe it was Can talking I about the. That for me? I'm, I'm yeah, maybe it was the Texas Receptus. Yeah. Let me see what. Maybe it was the Texas Receptus. Let me. It might be referring to the um, the history behind the Texas Receptus and how um, I'm trying to remember where it was. It was before you got to the new development. Section. Right, right. Are you sure it wasn't Hills? Um, Pretty sure. It was Theodore Letus. It was the dark blue book. Dark blue, okay. Sorry, if you want to do this later, you can. Oh, oh no, it's actually something I, I have right in here. Um, you were reading on the book. Oh, was I? Yeah. Oh, maybe it was, um, yeah, 217. Let me look at 217 here. Yeah, yeah, we, we probably will. So uh, let me go ahead and close in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would, uh, again, uh, guide us as a church and, and as a denomination, that you would bless us and be with us um, and guard us um, from error. We thank you for <clears throat> our ministers, uh, uh, both Pastor Sharp and um, David Chilton, who will be preaching today, that you um, have given us... Um, ministers who were trained in the original languages and we pray that you would uh, help us to be recipients of your word as we hear it preached today in jesus name amen